welcome. Good evening. Welcome to our retreat here at the beautiful, this beautiful space we have. It's such a lovely space. and We're actually really fortunate to have such an intimate setting here with the, the 12 of you here. One of the early retreats I sat was about this size. It remains one of my you know, fond memories of having the, the, uh, the container of the retreat be so intimate. So it's really lovely to have you all here with us. So I'd like to um, introduce myself. I'm Andrea Fella, um, and um, you know, I've been teaching for a number of years now and teach, teach at the Insight Meditation Society in, in Massachusetts and teach in, at Spirit Rock in California and various places around the country like this one who invite, invite me to come. And my dear friend and colleague, Greg, um, we met pretty much met when we were um, helping create a retreat together in Burma. So that's, uh, we've got a, 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 lot, a lot of history together and time spent together, both teaching retreat and managing retreats. Um, Greg also teaches at the Insight Meditation Society and um, in Burma. He, he's, a, he's an international meditation teacher now, <laughs> teaching all over the world. Um, and so we're very happy to be here with you um, for this retreat. So I'd like to just say a few words about the schedule. There's a few of you here who have never been on a meditation retreat before, so I just want to say a few words about the schedule. Um, the, the schedules are posted around, I assume, various places on the bulletin board. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a regular schedule, you know, we have a system of bells, and um, for those of you who aren't familiar with our uh, retreats and the bell system, um, it's pretty simple, you know, if you hear a bell in here when we ring it, you know, at the end of the sitting, it means it's time to, to go walking. <laughs> And if you hear a bell out there, it means it's time to come back into here. And around the meal times, you'll probably know it's around the meal times. Your body will tell you it's around the meal times. So it's pretty simple, and you can actually, um, you know, see if you can renounce your watch. You know, renounce looking at your watch, and just settle into the container and the uh, the support that's provided here um, to structure our time together. So. We're pretty much sitting and walking, practicing sitting and walking meditation all day, punctuated by our meals. And there are three particular events each day. At the 8.30 sitting in the morning, we'll have instructions and some time for questions after that. And then at the 3 o'clock sitting in the afternoon, we'll have a metta practice, uh, which is a guided loving-kindness, a heart-opening practice. And then in the evening at 7.40, we'll have a, a talk. Um, so those are, those, that's kind of the, the structure of the day. And during the week, we will offer practice discussions, uh, meetings with you individually, and we'll both have opportunities for regularly scheduled meetings with you, as well as a few spaces for sign-up interviews if you'd like some extra um, time to speak with us. We'll, we'll start those on Sunday, so tomorrow will just be a day to settle into the rhythm of the place and the schedule. 
And then we'll talk more about the individual practice discussions on Sunday. So I wanted to say a few words about basically, you know, what we're doing here. And uh, I'd like to start by just recalling how I felt as I came up here today. I was on the Twin Hearts shuttle and uh, driving up through the gorge. It's beautiful in the gorge. I mean, it's just a beautiful, the landscape is beautiful and it was just so lovely. The raw beauty of the, of the desert touches me so much. Um, you know, there's something about the desert that just very deeply resonates with me. And then coming out of the gorge onto the plateau, it's just such an opening, you know, moving into that space. The vastness of the desert becomes so apparent. The, um, the vastness of the sky, the expansiveness of the sky, and it's just, oh, it felt like my heart just expanded with the land. So there's this container of the environment, the desert that we're in, the, uh, the raw beauty of the land, the expansiveness of the, the, the view, the space. The look, you know, we can look out quite a long way, especially if you walk a little bit up the hill. And then there's the sky and the purity of the air. It's just amazing. So there's this kind of container that we're held in in this space. And this can support us. The, um, the beauty of the place, the expansiveness, the spaciousness can support us if we feel like we get contracted in our minds or struggle and feel like we're tight and held in our mind. We can go out into the space and just recognize that there's more to the world than our own internal struggles. And then there's the container of the retreat itself. The silence, the simplicity. Now we'll be in silence here that um, that will just hold our days in silence. I mean, we'll talk. <laughs> we'll, we'll be talking, but largely you will be in silence. Now when you come into the interviews, of course, the practice discussions, the meetings with us, it's fine to speak. You don't have to write out a description of your experience and hand it to us. And you know, if you're in your your yogi jobs, it's fine to um, speak to Surya and to um, you know to, to communicate functional speech. So you know, it doesn't have to be a strict kind of silence in that way that we're not clamping down on our mouths for a week. But we are moving into a place of noble silence where. We are looking at um, any. Um, we're looking at our minds and the support of the silence to in- encourage us to move inward as opposed to outward. So letting go of this talking actually encourages us to move inwards. So the silence is one of the aspects of this container. The simplicity. Well, the schedule's pretty simple. We sit, then we walk, then we sit, then we walk, then we sit, then we eat, then we sit, then we walk. 
It goes like that. You know, so the simplicity here, I mean, the, our lives are not simple. Our lives are full of busyness. They're full of computers and gadgets and meetings and partners and excitement and all kind, the, the whole show of our lives. And here we have an opportunity to really let go of that, to let go of the busyness of our lives and settle into something really, really simple. Simplicity is a, is a huge support for our practice. So the schedule is also an aspect of this, the container, and, and the schedule supports a kind of a sustaining of this awareness, a sustaining of the attention. That the uh, we begin, we practice, we learn that we can practice more continuously. We learn how to practice more continuously. This also greatly supports our settling. And then there's the support of each other, the Sangha support. Another aspect of this container of the retreat. I think you'll find, those of you who are experienced with retreats know this, you know, that it's so beautiful. I mean, the, the silence is wonderful and the fact that we're together in silence is really wonderful that the support that we offer each other in the silence is quite profound we don't have to make eye contact we don't have to gesture or communicate in any way you know, I've spent whole retreats where I've, all I've looked at is people's socks and shoes, you know, and not looked up and looked at their faces. <laughs> and, and, you know, while it seems a bit awkward, for those of you who are new on retreat, it may seem a little awkward to not be making eye contact. It will also support this uh, settling into the container of the retreat. And partly we mention this because for some people new on retreat, especially, you know, it seems odd that people aren't looking at you and you feel, oh, this is like, this is really strange. I remember on my very first retreat, it was like, I felt like I didn't know, you know, if I was okay unless I could make eye contact with people. But by the end of that retreat, I really appreciated the fact that you're left alone, that you're with a community, but left alone to just meet yourself. There's no need to be anything for anyone. It's a huge gift that we offer each other. And the practice that we do is a support for each other. There have been times I remember when I'd look across at somebody who was moving very mindfully. You know, I remember getting up and walking out of the meditation hall one day and seeing somebody move their hands to shift their posture of their hands and seeing it was so clear to me the person was completely present and it just took me into a whole new realm of possibility for being mindful so just seeing how we practice and sometimes we can get we can struggle you know we feel like we're struggling and we can see somebody just doing walking meditation and there can be a sense of if they can do it I can do it so we support each other in this way it's a very beautiful thing so allow, allow yourself to be held by these containers, the container of the desert, the spaciousness, the beauty, the silence of the desert, 
container of the retreat, the silence, the simplicity, the stillness, the support that we offer each other, and the schedule. Allow yourself to be held by these containers. If we just came here and allowed ourselves to be held by the container of the desert and were in silence and simplicity, if that's all we did for the week, I think you'd probably find there was actually quite a bit of settling that happened. So just the container can, can provide a place where the mind settles down. But we can actually go much further than this. You know, the, the mind settles down through just the, the simplicity, but we also can train our minds to settle more deeply through letting go of our habitual tendency to think about the past and the future, even about the present moment. You know, we'll sit here thinking about the present moment as well. We'll find, find our mind kind of running in commentary about what's happening in the present moment. Just letting go of these habits of mind to think. And not that thinking is bad. It's not so much that thinking is bad, but thinking does tend to take us out of the present moment. It is possible to be aware while we are thinking, to be mindful while we are thinking. But it tends to be that our thoughts send us shooting into other worlds and times and places. Whole worlds get created in our minds. And then we lose track of where we actually are. We lose track of our lives, actually, of what's actually happening, the direct lived experience of the moment. And so over and over again, we let go of this tendency to think and come back to the lived experience of the moment. Over and over again, we come back to this lived experience with a quality of kindness and friendliness to our attention. So these two pieces, the coming back, the letting go of thoughts, the coming back, and this friendliness, this kindness, sense of open-hearted willingness to meet what's happening, These two pieces really allow a settling of the mind, support an opening of the heart and a quieting of the mind. And that process then opens us to an even deeper possibility, a more profound opening to begin to learn and understand about our own minds. This is really where this practice is so powerful. The settling is wonderful, actually. You'll, you'll find a, um, it can move to places of peacefulness and ease through the settling down of the mind. But this practice of mindfulness, the Vipassana practice that we do, is profound in that it allows us to explore how our minds respond to the world. And we find that our minds actually respond to the world in some not-so-helpful ways a lot of the time. Very reactive. You know, we have some um, habitual ways that we get caught in reactivity. So we learn through observing, and we'll talk about this during the week, learn through observing how our minds do what they do. And gradually through this observing, this watching, the mind starts to release and let go around these patterns. Let's go of these habits. 
We also begin to understand as we watch what's happening in our minds. We also begin to understand that the usual perspective that we have on the world is limited. It's, it really you know, kind of boxes us into a very narrow view. And not only that, not only is it limited, but many of the ways we view the world are actually completely mistaken. There's a fundamental misunderstanding that we have around how the world works, how our minds work, how things work. One of the main, one of the key ways that we misunderstand is around where happiness is to be found. Our usual notions of this are that happiness comes from getting what we want. You know, this is one of our main notions. And as we move into more and more, um, you know, letting go of the things that we want, I mean, the more we practice, the more we see that a lot of the things that we used to want, they've begun to fall away. But then we start to want particular meditative states, you know. So, so the, the pattern actually keeps replicating itself. So there's a lot of ways that we, um, you know, it's, it's a deep pattern. It's deeply conditioned that having what I want is the way towards happiness. Very deeply conditioned. Another way that... Um, we think happiness comes is from being in control of our experience. Whether or not things are pleasant, if I feel like I'm in control, there's a sense of, okay, this is, this is, this is good. This is okay when I'm in control. So these are beliefs. You know, happiness comes from getting what I want. These beliefs um, are deeply conditioned by our culture, by our upbringing, and also, I think, are um, encouraged by evolution. You know, that uh, some of the way in which evolution has happened has actually encouraged this notion of get what I want, that's what, where happiness lies. So we think, actually, I think, you know, very deeply we know, we do know at some level that having a particular thing while it feels good to have something that we want, we know that that is not the be-all and end-all. But we do seem to believe, deeply believe, that what happiness means is over and over getting the next thing that I want. That constructing a life strung together with getting things I want, that that's happiness. And it's so deeply conditioned and so much a part of our lives that we can't even envision happiness coming in any other way often. It's just so so profoundly conditioned. So there is a happiness in getting what we want. I want to acknowledge that. You know, there's there's a sense of pleasure of the having. There is a kind of a happiness that comes from that. And, And the Buddha acknowledged that. He actually acknowledged that there are many levels and layers of happiness. And, you know, having, he talked about um, having wealth that was righteously gained, he he said, you know, righteous wealth righteously gained is a happiness of a householder, of a a person who has to be in the world. That that is um, 
money acquired by wholesome means, by skillful means, by right livelihood, is a happiness because we can then support our families, we can support um, the, the things that we love, we can support causes that we find important, we can use our uh, our resources as a kind of a sustaining thing to support the things that we think are important what our priorities are so this is a happiness the Buddha did talk about this as being a happiness but the flaw really comes in the strategy around having what we want that over and over again having what we want there's a couple of flaws to this strategy one is that some measure of the time we don't succeed in getting what we want and we think because happiness comes from getting what we want that somehow when we don't succeed in getting what we want that we're a failure that something's wrong with us that it's a problem rather than it just simply being a natural part of the condition of the world that sometimes conditions come together so that we get what we want sometimes they come together so that we don't get what we want so we take it personally often when we don't get what we want various levels of this in your life you know it may be that you know so you don't get you know a chocolate bar that you like because somebody else took the last one or something that's a small one but you don't get the job that you really want there's a little more investment in that a little bit more suffering around that. If we do succeed in getting what we want, there can be a there can be an anxiety at times, a fear of that it will go away. So there's a kind of having to shore up that thing. Oh, I've got what I want. How do I keep it? And so there's a continual kind of process around keeping it. So those are two of the aspects of this strategy that are mistaken in our minds in a way but the really fundamental mistake in this strategy is that while there is a happiness that comes from getting what we want a lot of the happiness that happens when we get what we want comes not from the fact that we have this thing but the fact that the feeling of wanting has gone away that for a few moments we have a release from that feeling of wanting something that's actually quite a when we start to recognize it it's quite a strong uh, part of the happiness of getting what we want the happiness of the letting go of the wanting wanting itself is not pleasant you know we don't actually until we start to pay attention to this experience it doesn't even occur to us to look at the experience of wanting because we're so focused on the idea of having the thing we're projecting into the future and thinking about how great it's going to be to get that thing and that idea that fantasy is pleasant and it obscures for us the actual unpleasantness of the state of wanting as soon as wanting comes up in our experience there's a feeling of lack a feeling of insufficiency and we mis- we mistake this because we're focused on the idea of the having we don't see this feeling of lack we mis- we, we don't see that this is a fundamental state 
that we're actually encouraging by being on this cycle of wanting something and getting it. You know, having this wanting and then the getting and the having. By, by being on that cycle, we actually encourage more of this wanting. It actually encourages us to be in this state of lack, of insufficiency. It's quite amazing that our minds do this. So when the feeling of wanting goes away, the feeling of lack goes away, the feeling of insufficiency goes away. And this is one of the, the explorations that we make in this practice is we we start to see that a lot of our struggle, our unease, our unhappiness comes because we we are not satisfied with things as they are. You know, we we're we're always wanting things to be just slightly some other way. And you'll see this over and over again this week. Things are just not quite the way we want them to be. So in that state of wanting things to be other than they are, we're kind of out of line, out of alignment with reality, out of alignment with the actuality of experience. So the practice begins to put us in alignment with truth, with alignment with reality. Now sometimes, often actually, when I talk about wanting like this, people ask the question about desire, about, you know, is all desire bad? You know, this is a, you know, what about the desire to take care of my family? You know, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. So the, in the Buddhist teaching, there are two different ideas that are both often, one is often translated as wanting or craving, and the other one is often translated as desire. So wanting or craving is this term, the Pali term is tanha. And it has a real stickiness to it. It, it, it has a sense of needing to have things be a certain way. So it's often got a sense of stickiness to a particular result. So that's this craving this wanting that is not helpful for us. That we, it's kind of like we're setting ourselves up to um, project into the future and say, this is the way it has to be in order for me to be happy. And if it doesn't happen that way, what happens? We, we don't have that, uh, that scenario come up. We, we struggle, we suffer, we feel dissatisfied, we feel like we have to fix things, we feel like we're a failure. Then there's another side, which is um, the Pali term is chanda, which often is translated as desire. And this is a neutral kind of desire. It can either, it's it's, um, flavored by whatever's happening, whatever else is happening in the mind. So, you know, there there can be an unwholesome kind of chanda, unwholesome kind of desire that maybe is focused towards pleasure. I mean, it's not going to be something that's um, you know, deeply wrong, but it's kind of just skewed towards pleasure. That's uh, the first of the hindrances, kamachanda. 
hindrance, uh, the, the desire for sense pleasure. But this chanda, this, this kind of desire, can also be associated with wholesome, beautiful qualities of mind like kindness, and compassion, letting go. So that this, this is actually an exploration that we make during the weeks to see when we're choosing to act. Are we choosing to act out of kindness and compassion or are we choosing to act out of greed and aversion? So the desire, the wish that comes along with kindness and compassion and letting go, that's a wholesome wish. We want to encourage those those explorations. And so there's really a, thre- a theme here that we're cultivating this week. This is two-sided thread of awareness and wisdom, understanding that comes from the practice of mindfulness. And then there's the, the kindness and the compassion that actually the, 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 the practice of mindfulness can be completely interwoven with this kindness and compassion. That actually when we really start to resonate with the practice, we see that it is one of the most compassionate things we can do for ourselves. One of the kindest actions we can take by being present for ourselves. So, I'm going to let Greg say some things. So I'd like to welcome you uh, for my part as well. And uh, it's great to be here. It's, uh, it's a beautiful place, this lodge, and it's, it's so um, quiet here. I just came back a week ago from spending a month in Burma, or Myanmar as it's called these days, which is a place that's uh, dear to my heart. I've done a lot of uh, time practicing. Uh, I lived there as a monk uh, for a time some years ago. And, I've gone there almost every winter since uh, 1997 to help with the retreat that um, Andrea mentioned. And uh, it's not quiet there. <laughs> a lot of the places that are the meditation centers. If we were in, if this was in Burma, there would be music playing and a lot of action out there going on and dogs barking. And um, so we're really lucky. We have great conditions here. Um, to have this kind of real quiet. And um, before I begin talking about the refuges and precepts, which is the next phase of this evening, um, I just want to acknowledge that it's, um, yeah, it's great to have this, this small, intimate group. And, and it's an interesting group because we have people who have never been on a retreat before, who've maybe almost never meditated before, and some people have been practicing for uh, nearly 25 years, or, or maybe more than that. So it's a real range. And um, 
that's great. It made me think of my first retreat that I ever did. My introduction to meditation practice was a 10-day retreat. And I had not meditated for even a second before I went to it. I was all really new. And, and it might be kind of how some of you are feeling. You know, I'd never heard any of these, these words in this Pali language. Um, I remember hearing the word metta. Well, there were these notes all around the place that said, helpful little notes, uh, don't bring any food into the meditation hall, and they were signed, signed metta, or please be on time for the sitting, signed metta. And I thought there was some helpful busybody on the retreat whose name was metta, who couldn't help but leave these, these nice little notes around. So... Um, and I survived that 10-day retreat, you know, so if some of you are kind of wondering if you might make it through the week, uh, I think you probably will. Um, so there will be, you know, a lot of words in this Pali language. It's spelled P-A-L-I. It's a variation on Sanskrit. It's an ancient language that um, exists because of the teachings of the Buddha. It's not used in any other for anything else these days and the teachings were preserved in that language and we'll be using some of the words try not to assume that you know know them all um, and so I did pass out these chanting sheets and um, this is kind of the really the entrance into this the formal entrance into the retreat is by um, taking the refuges and precepts it's called and it involves doing some chanting in this language and we'll do it call and response so you'll get through it um, without any trouble um, and some of you this may be something you're really familiar with and for some of you it may it's no doubt it's brand new um, and it really is is the, the it really is the beginning of the retreat. You know, Andrea spoke about these containers, the container of this place, um, the container of the silence here, of our shared, you could say there's a container of our shared aspiration, whatever it might be that would um, inspire us to come on a retreat like this. This is not a something that everybody does, right? I mean, you could have all gone on vacation or you could ditched up to the mountains and go skiing. I think there's a pretty good base up there. And, um, but instead, you know, something got you to come uh, and sign up to do this retreat. And so there's that shared inspiration. You could say the inspiration uh, to explore what it is to be human, to undertake this um, cultivation of kindness, of love, of wisdom for this time. And... Um, and then there's this container that we create through this undertaking of, of the refuges and precepts. And so I want to say a little bit um, about these things. So we, could, we, we, could, we don't think of the word refuge too much, I think, in our daily lives that often. Maybe some of us do. We don't talk about needing a place of refuge and that much. But we might ask ourselves or look in our lives, think about what what that word means. You know, it's a place of safety. You could say a safe harbor. Sometimes it's said the refuge is likened to a, a safe place where we could rest our hearts, place the heart, a safe place to put our hearts. And we might ask ourselves, well, what would be a place of, of safety, a place of real refuge in the world, in an uncertain, changing, unpredictable world? What's safe in that? What would be a true refuge? What do we turn to for refuge? 
it's really important to think about this and to make it real for for each of us for ourselves you know it's not um, not going to offer something that is then a, a system of belief to to put on a mantle of belief to adopt that's not what this practice what the teachings are about you know there's this word ehipasiko it's one of the descriptions of the, the Buddha's teachings of the Dharma the word translates as, as come and see for yourself it's really an important aspect of this of what we offer here is this invitation try it on put it into practice in a sincere way and see does this lead to things that are helpful and useful does it lead to good things to freedom to peace to ease in our lives or not so there's that invitation there and so when we th- we think about refuge you know i was thinking tonight i came into the hall and i bowed to this statue here and i'll see me do that when i come to the hall i'm going to do that and you know what would that be about you know we might start asking what's up with that you know and you might be worried you're, that you're going to be expected to start bowing you know to this statue back here and so don't worry about it you're not expected to do that you'll see us put our hands in this posture it's called anjali in this sort of prayer posture at the heart it's like it said it's said to represent the bud of a lotus flower it's a gesture of, of respect. You may see us gesture at the, the Buddha statue with that uh, hand posture. And you might be concerned, some of you, that by doing this chanting that, that you're becoming a Buddhist. And I'd just like to let you know that, that neither one of us has any agenda about turning anyone here into a Buddhist if, if you don't want to be one. It's not about that. And that's not not something that's important. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. It's good to remember that. You know, he was a a human who lived and had a certain experience, and then taught about it in the best way he was able to. And it's interesting to to think that, you know, for hundreds of years after the Buddha's life and death, there weren't these statues. These came about when the Greeks came into that into northwest India and they said you have no statues of your gods and they were used to having a lot of statues. And so the early Buddha images were modeled after the god Apollo. They look very Greek. And prior to that there was either an empty seat or sometimes a pair of footprints. And the Buddha called himself the Tathagata, the one thus gone. And it wasn't about you know an image of a being. It was not important. And it came along much later. And so, you know, when I bow to this statue, you know, what's that about? There's nothing holy or intrinsically wonderful about this casting in terracotta back here. And we may find it beautiful. But, but you know, we bow, obviously, to what it symbolizes, right? I mean, that seems, of course, that's obvious. Maybe like stating the obvious to say that, but it's important to really think about well, what does that, what does that symbolize? What might that symbolize? You know, and traditionally we could say it symbolizes what's called the the triple gem. And here it says tisarana, this triple gem. What is this? This what is this gem? This triple gem of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. These three things 
are what's called the triple gem in this tradition. And, and so this is what we take refuge in. And so then what would be refuge in Buddha? It's interesting, the word Buddha, Bud, in this language, it, it means wakefulness, awake. And when the historical Buddha, after his awakening, his enlightenment, and he was walking down the road and he, he looked pretty good, he has glowing, you know, and he, he, he was, had a striking appearance by all descriptions, and he was cruising down the road and, and someone saw him, a wanderer, uh, an ascetic wanderer and said you know are you a god are you what are you you know and the buddha said i am awake this was his description of his his state awakened the awakened one buddha and so we can take refuge in wakefulness we might take refuge in we might think of the historical buddha as a human who had this experience who left this body of teachings for us, who said, if this were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And so we can, we can look at that and say, oh, okay, if he could do it, maybe I can do it too. This was the teaching there, that this is possible for beings to have, these, to have this understanding, to wake up in this way. And so we can take refuge in, in this possibility, and each of us our possibility for wakefulness, for wisdom to arise, that that's real. That's the refuge in Buddha. And we can have this refuge. This is a place of safety no matter what's going on, no matter where we are. We can find a place of safety in wakefulness in the moment. And then there's the refuge in the Dhamma, Dharma, and this word dhamma or dharma in Sanskrit, it, it has a few different meanings. The word is used for the teachings, Buddha dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. It means law, natural law. You could say the law of nature. Because of, of natural conditions, the way things are. Because of this, then this. That's another meaning of the word dhamma or dharma. It also means the truth of things in any moment. So that we can take refuge in that. Because no matter what's going on, no matter how wild and crazy things are, in any moment we can know, oh, right now it's like this. The way it is now. We can know the truth of the moment. We can wake up into the truth of the moment. So this is this refuge in Dharma. This is another place of safety for us. Another thing that is safe no matter what. We can always know it's like this right now. We can place our hearts on that. And then this refuge in Sangha, this third aspect of the triple gem. The Sangha, in the very most traditional way, it refers to the, the ordained Sangha of nuns and monks. And the reason we have these teachings at all is because of... of uh, the nuns and monks who were alive at the time of the Buddha and memorized these teachings. They weren't written down for several hundred years. They were memorized orally and passed down orally. And so they've been carried on through time in this way and then written down eventually. And we have those who, who practiced what the Buddha taught and realized what he was pointing at and, and show us the way. So there's, there's that aspect of Sangha. 
there's the community of those who practice together. This is called the Sangha. We're creating Sangha here. It's like a shared aspiration or shared vision. Someone, a teacher of mine once said, Sangha, we create Sangha. It's like um, windows looking into a common room. You know, we each look from our own place, our own window. We look through our own, our own conditioning, our own upbringing, our own backgrounds, our own understandings, whatever they may be at any moment. But we're looking into the commonality, the same room of this possibility of, of understanding. We're looking into what's universal and true for all of us. And so we create Sangha here. We're creating this here as we come together for these days together. And I also see that Sangha as being a, you could say, um, for each of us, our highest aspiration, whatever that might be in any moment. And that might change over time. But we have an aspiration to understand, to cultivate love and wisdom, for example. Some, Some way that we relate to that, that would get us to come to retreat. And that's no small thing in the world. To hold that, even that possibility, to any intention around cultivating love and wisdom. This is rare and beautiful in the world. And this is an aspiration that we can, we can touch that at any time. So that's another place that's a place of safety and refuge. So we have the refuges and then we have these precepts. And these are, um, I don't know, the, the, the word here says pancha sila. The word sila is usually translated as ethical conduct, you could say, or moral conduct. Some people don't like the word moral. And this is, was stressed, is stressed throughout the Buddha's teachings as the very foundation that the practice rests on. That if we don't have some relationship to an ethical way of living, that our practice will never unfold. And there's a, um, there's a simple way we can think of this. And there's a beautiful teaching in one of the uh, suttas that speaks directly to it. And um, it's in a collection called the Anguttara Nikaya. And in this case, the Buddha's attendant, whose name was Ananda, was his cousin, and he, he served as his kind of attendant and uh, um, also had this great memory. He memorized most of the suttas. Anything he heard, he, he had a photographic kind of memory. And he asked the Buddha a question once. He said, um, What, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? And then the Buddha went through this list, starting with, he said, Virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and their reward. And non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. And gladness has joy as its benefit and reward, and so on. Joy has serenity. Serenity has happiness, and so on. He went through all these stages that it led eventually to the highest understanding, led to joy and serenity, led to concentration, to dispassion, to letting go, to disenchantment, and to the greatest peace. 
And so he said, in this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the very highest. And so when we undertake living in a way that's, that's as harmless as possible, this leaves us in a state of mind, of heart, that is free of remorse. We're not worried that we're harming others. We're free of remorse and worry. This leads to greater tranquility and ease in our lives. Allows for our meditation practice to unfold and progress. And it's important when we undertake these precepts that we we have a sense of what what's meant by the word precept. You know, they're not commandments or laws. They're not thou shalt nots. They're training rules, you could say. They're an exploration. They're something that we undertake as an exploration for ourselves in this same um, uh, feeling or... Mm, in the same way of this ehipasiko of come and see for ourselves. We see for ourselves what happens in our minds and hearts when we live a life of care, a life based on kindness and non-harming. So we undertake these as an exploration, realizing that, you know, it's really hard, if not impossible, to live without harming some living beings. You know, there's a lot of really tiny ones that probably get worked over every time we take a breath or every time we step, even if we're totally careful. So we, it's this intention is the key here to not intentionally harm, to not intentionally cause harm. And this commitment to living as harmlessly as possible to sincerely undertaking uh, an ethical way of living, this leads to one of the greatest of all possible gifts that we could offer to the world. And that's the gift of fearlessness. You know, if we can offer this gift that other beings don't have to fear us because they know that we will not intentionally harm them, this is a huge gift to be fearless in the world. It's a wonderful thing we can offer to uh, the world to one another. So I'll just quickly go through these uh, a list of the precepts. You can have a look at them if you want. It's this panchasila down there, halfway down. And so the first one is this panatipata in Pali. It's undertaking the training to abstain from harming living beings. And so this includes all kinds of living beings, including little ones that might like to bite you. And this time of year we don't have mosquitoes, but um, or ones that we just tend to disregard or see as getting in our way in some way. We really we we respect the the um, the right of all beings to live. So we don't we try not to intentionally harm any beings. And then the second one, Adina Dana, we undertake the training to abstain from taking that which is not given, that which has not been offered. And so as part of the, the safety here at this place, we respect one another's property and we don't take things that haven't been offered to us. So it's, you know, we could say we don't steal, but then we use care with the things that are offered. We take... Uh, we look at how we use things. 
We respect what belongs to someone else, even if it seems like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. It seems sort of harmless. But we, let's, let's just look and see, well, what's, what's our motivation before we take something? And then the third one is abramacharya. In, and that's for us here on retreat. And in lay life, outside of retreat, uh, the words are also here in parentheses, I think, um, kamesu michachara. This precept has to do with sexual energy and, and our conduct around sexuality. And for the, the time of the retreat, then we undertake um, celibacy. That's our, our uh, commitment for this time. So it gives us a chance to really look at this energy that's so powerful in our lives in the world and causes such um, it can lead to such connection and good things and, and causes so much harm when it's not um, dealt with mindfully so we get a chance to really look at this energy and how it manifests and how it operates in our lives and in our hearts and minds outside of retreat time then this Kamesumi Chachara is the, the precept to um, refrain from causing harm with our sexual energy. So to really be mindful how this energy manifests. And it can be in so many ways, just simple flirtatious kind of energy and, and where that comes from. But here on retreat, then, we, we uh, undertake the training to abstain from it. And it's not a judgment about it. There's nothing like that. It's just a, um, a part of how we create this container of safety here and a chance for us to really look and explore what this energy is like and how it manifests in our lives. And the fourth one is Musawada. Uh, it's the training to abstain from false speech is how it's um, listed here. It's um, to not lie, the very simplest way you could think about it. And it's not a huge issue here because we'll be in noble silence and we're not going to be talking a whole lot. But it's really... Um, an interesting one to look at the way we use speech um, in our lives and we can look at it here in terms of of other ways that we might communicate and really refraining from um, from anything that's that's not really necessary to support one another in the way that Andre was speaking about um, in terms of the the noble silence here and you know putting away our our cell phones and um, computers and things like that if we don't need them. And then finally, the Suramiraya Majapamadatana is this uh, refraining from the use of intoxicants. And usually it's said, um, intoxic- here it says intoxicating substances. Often it's phrased um, substances that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. You know, we're we're cultivating heedfulness here, mindfulness, heedfulness. And this, of course, doesn't refer to prescription medications, anything that one might be taking for your health in that way. Um, you don't let go of those. But we let go of, of uh, intoxicants and substances that that uh, lead to lack of clarity, lead to hateful, heedless behavior. So these are the precepts. And, um, yeah, I think we're going on a little longer than we planned to, and it's late, and some of you have traveled a long way to get here, so we'll do the chanting here. 
And then at the end, I'll just mention there's this final dedication that really points to the uh, fundamental um, and foundational aspect of of these practices of the the refuges and the precepts as um, as being the basis that our practice rests on, and um, this dedication that to undertake this may this lead to us to the highest um, and greatest understanding to the knowledge of the path and its fruit, which is one way that the the realization of uh, the fullness of the Buddha's teaching is, re- is expressed. So I'll go through, we'll go through this kind of um, line by line. Uh, I think, yeah, we'll do it. Um, yeah, we'll just go through it line by line. And things are done in threes a lot in Theravada tradition, so... You'll notice we do things in threes. So um, when we come to the refuges, I'd like to do them in both Pali and in English. So we'll, we'll do the Pali, um, and then we'll, we'll speak the uh, English together this time so that we really kind of bring to mind in the language that we're used to what, we, what it is we're doing with these things. <clears throat> So just follow along the as best you can for those of you who maybe if this is new to Namo Tassa Bhagavato I'll do it through once by myself so you can hear it. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Altogether three times. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranangachami Buddhang Saranangachami Dhammang Saranangachami Dhammang Saranangachami Sanghang Saranangachami Sanghang Saranangachami Dutiyampi, Dutiyampi, Buddhang Saranangachami, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sanghang Saranangachami, Sanghang Saranangachami, Tatiampi, Tatiampi, Buddhang Saranangachami, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangam Saranangachami, Sangam Saranangachami. 
Panati Pata Panati Pata Veramani Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sikapadam Samadhyami Adinadana Adinadana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musavada Musavada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Meraya Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idame Silam Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Pachayo Tu and we usually end this by saying sadhu, sadhu, sadhu three times. So let's do that all together. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Hmm? Oh, I said we would do them in English. Um, and we I meant to do it as we went through it, but I forgot. So let's um, let's do them in English. I undertake the training to abstain from harming living beings. We can do these all together. I undertake the training to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the training to abstain from taking what has not been given. I undertake the training to abstain from sexual activity. I undertake the training to abstain from false speech. I undertake the training to abstain from the use of intoxicating substances. So, it's late, and I know some of you are really ready to call it a day, but let's take a few minutes in silence, and I'll do a really short guided meditation for maybe 10 minutes or so. But um, why don't we stand up for a minute, stretch our legs, or at least maybe shift posture, because uh, we've been sitting already for an hour. So. Um, should I keep this going? Let me guess. Let's say something. And I'll just mention that um, because it's a small group, there are enough places on the floor and chairs that you may have one of each, (laughs) which is a rare and wonderful and beautiful thing, especially for those of us who are aging. So, um, and there's no stigma of any kind attached to the decision to sit in a chair sometimes. So um, avail yourself of them as needed. 
it's good to sit in, a, in more than one posture. It's a, these are long days. So let's we'll have a real short and sweet little session here to begin the retreat. And um, yeah, find a position that's really feels comfortable, where you feel the body at ease, the sense of the the uh, posture being upright and alert, but relaxed. The natural curves of the spine there. And just settle into the simplicity of the the posture. You know, the sitting, the simplest instruction I could give you would be to sit and know that you're sitting. Just feeling this, the whole body, how you know it's sitting. Feeling of the posture, the contact with the earth touching pressure there, earth sitting on earth. Take a moment just to run quickly the attention through the body. Notice the top of the head and notice if there are places of tension or holding that you don't really need, especially maybe the forehead and eyes Sometimes we can find we're holding tension there. Just relax the eyes, let them be soft in the sockets. We can find we're looking around even with our eyes closed. The eyes relax. The area of the cheeks and the jaw and the mouth. The back and the sides of the head. Notice the neck and the throat. Let the neck be long. And feeling the shoulders. Often we hold tension in the in our shoulders, just letting them be heavy and dropped. Let the intention go to the upper back, middle back, and lower back. Feeling this upright, alert, relaxed posture there in the spine. And back to the shoulders and the upper arms. Down through the elbows to the forearms. And into the hands. And just let the attention rest in the hands for a moment. Whatever you notice there, maybe the hands are touching or resting on the knees. Feeling of touching, warmth or coolness, pressure, tingling, whatever you notice. And coming back to the torso, the upper part of the torso, the chest, 
down through the ribs and the belly. Let the belly be soft and relaxed. I notice the movement of the breath there. The diaphragm, the breath moving in and out of the body, this rising and falling movement in and out, expanding, contracting as the breath comes in and out of the body. Down to the pelvis and the hips. Notice if there's any holding in the hips, the buttocks. Through the hip joints into the upper legs, thighs and knees down to the calves and lower part of the leg, the shin, into the ankles and the feet. This whole experience of body sitting, simplicity of that. Notice the mood of the mind. Notice if there's any any mood there, feeling of anticipation or worry or just dullness or tiredness that might be there. coming back to the body and that simplicity of the sitting posture. And notice the breath moving in and out of the body. You might notice the sensations of the at the nostrils. <laughs> Touching sensation as the breath comes in and out at the nostrils or the upper lip area. You might notice it in the back of the throat or in the upper in the chest as the lungs expand and contract. You might notice the movement of the abdomen rising and falling or expanding, contracting movement there. Whatever way you can easily connect with the breath moving in and out of the body. Receiving the breath. Letting it be natural, not looking for any particular special kind of breath, just however it's showing up.
And take a moment just here before I ring the bell, just to bring to mind some of your good qualities, some good, reflect maybe on some good deeds, some acts of generosity or kindness that that you can think of. Or just bringing to mind your your aspiration to come on retreat and to cultivate understanding kindness. It's such a beautiful, good thing. Or the goodness of undertaking the training of the refuges and precepts, the precepts. You know, this is no small thing. If, if everyone in the world made even a half-hearted attempt to keep the precepts, we would have a golden age in the world. So this is a beautiful, great goodness in this. And we can bring this to mind. We all have this goodness. We can bring this to mind and, and delight in this goodness. The Buddha said one should frequently reflect on one's good deeds, one's good qualities. And we can dedicate this, this great goodness, the power of that, for our own awakening, for the awakening, for the happiness for the liberation of all beings. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings. your good night and uh, deep restful sleep and sweet dreams and uh, I guess the first sitting is at 6.15 and there's a someone's ringing a wake up bell thank you for whoever's doing that and um, you know if you're just dead in the morning we're not going to take roll <laughs> for that first sitting please come if you're awake but um, you know it's it's been a long day for some of you traveling, so um, at least I'm giving you permission to sleep in <laughs> a little bit tomorrow only. And uh, but don't miss breakfast; that's one of the high points of the morning. And um, yeah, if you happen to be awake, this room is always open, so you can avail yourself of this place to sit anytime. Um, so have a good night. And I will try to turn this off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.